Welcome along to the weekend edition of Red Star Radio, and we have gone back to the source of our uh, the beginning of our program, which is we're talking again about the COVID nineteen. Um, no, nearly two years into the uh, the unfolding globalized madness of it, and today we're going to be looking at uh, the matter of well statistics, models, and manipulation therein. So Layla, we've got a guest with us today. Do you want to introduce him? Yes. So we're talking to Professor Norman Fenton, who is a British mathematician and currently a professor of risk information management at Queen Mary University in London. And he's also the director of uh, Agena, a company that specializes in risk management for critical systems. Uh, So thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Fenton. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Um, I first learned about you uh, via your, uh, you, uh, you actually, you're actually quite quoted and cited in the, I guess, COVID skeptic statistician uh, field. Um, I, I seem to have been, yes, yeah. I seem to have been associated with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you, you, you get like uh, cited a lot. So I, I heard about you, I think from, uh, it might've been, I don't know if you've heard of him, Malo Gatto. Uh, it, it might have, I think oh, it was- <laughs> that's that's very interesting because I've actually I've actually stolen one. Of his, he's the guy who did the bunker analysis. Yes. Uh, and, uh, yeah. Oh, okay. Because I wanted to talk. I wanted to mention that. Okay. Mm. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. He's one of my favorite uh, writers. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think he's located in Puerto Rico or something. Yeah. 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 He's really good. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, I guess first of all, uh, we'd love to get some of your reflections on what it's been like to be uh, an academic. A critical academic uh, critiquing mm. COVID nineteen propaganda since the you know close to the very start. Um, so I was really hoping to hear about your story of how you became what led you to become ske- skeptical of some of the dominant narratives surrounding the pandemic, and how has the response been from others inside and outside your workplace? Okay, well, I mean, because so much of the COVID narrative from the beginning was driven by statistics and risk assessment. Yeah. Uh, it, it was kind of inevitable that I would get involved in this. And so I was active. I and some of my, well, a small number of colleagues, because there are not that many, I say, who, who, who actually ever sought to really understand what was being, you know, the data that had been presented by the government. So, but we were active from the start in analyzing publicly available data. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because initially what we were doing, and we were getting published, were analysis such as, doing more accurate calculations of infection and fatality rates. And that work wasn't considered controversial because it didn't seriously challenge any of the what I call the official narrative at that time. Mm-hmm. In fact, we were actually initially calling for much more random testing mm-hmm. coded, mm-hmm. something which the government adopted, which I now regard as catastrophic. Mm-hmm. And it's not just because I learned how, how inaccurate and corrupt PCR testing can be. So, in fact, it became clear when mass PCR testing started in the late summer of 2020, especially of asymptomatic people, you know, let's test everyone, going back to school, that sort of stuff, going to work, that it could lead to easy manipulation of the data to suit particular narratives. So, as a case was defined as a person testing positive of a PCR test, and of course, the more testing you do, the more cases you'll find. And many of these people were not ill at all. Um, you know, and many of the so-called hosp- COVID hospitalization and deaths were people who were hospitalized or died with COVID rather than because of it. Yeah. So when we started to analyze the impact of that obsessive focus on case numbers, it led us to dispute almost all of the official government narrative about the impact of COVID. 
And that was when our work was shunned by mainstream academia and the media. And as a result, I've been publicly defamed, shunned. Mm. I've been insulted. I've been called a conspiracy theorist, pusher of fake news and misinformation. And people continually call for my dismissal from Queen Mary on Twitter. And I've been censored, not mm. just on social media, but by the academic publishing community and by uh, academic colleagues. And I mean, as I say, in contrast, in the first few months, we we had several papers published in peer-reviewed journals, you know, which applied our sort of Bayesian modeling techniques. And, it, and um, I was invited to speak at many seminars then about the work. But it was, you know, when we started to do, especially the research, not just on the implications of the flawed PCR testing, but also more recently on possible benefits of early treatments like ivermectin and the ineffectiveness and possible dangers of vaccines. That's made things much, much worse to the extent mm. that my COVID-related papers now get rejected without review. Really? That's something I, I never, ever ex- yeah, never mm. encountered before. And even the major preprint servers that were specifically set up to enable researchers to deposit their work prior to review, they've also stopped accepting our papers. But just finally on this point, on on a positive side, I have actually gained quite a lot of brilliant, new brilliant colleagues and friends who've seen through the lies and censorship of mainstream media and academia. academia. And I get people contacting me, you know, members of public as well as academics who are too scared to speak out, thanking me for the work I'm doing, which is quite gratifying. And, you know, I've even gained, you know, quite a following now on Twitter on YouTube, although actually YouTube removed without warning one of my most watched um, COVID statistics videos on the grounds that it contained information that was not supported by the World Health Organization. (laughs) Um, It sounds so bad. Like we've, we've spoken to a ton of different people and they all tell similar stories of very draconian and, um, censorship in a way that they're they're always really taken aback <laughs> for every other yeah, topic I mean, i've never experienced because remember I mean, this is you know I, i've not really done any controversial work you know what's, what's considered <laughs> controversial before so i've never ever had anything like that I've never experienced it especially you know not from people who you would previously sort of trust not to do that yeah i i mean it's been really stunning to me um observing the type of censorship that's been launched at even the most famous and well-respected academics, like Ionidas, for instance. Of course, yeah. yeah. It's terrible, yeah. Yeah, anyway. absolutely. Yeah, well. And all the, all the people who, you know, signed the sort of Great Barrington Declaration came in for ridiculous. In fact, it was such a, it was such a mild statement, and yet those people <laughs> yeah. came in for brutal, you know, brutal abuse. Well, much of it directed from um, Dominic Cummings, I believe, out of number 10. Um, yeah. He was, the, he was behind a lot of the smearing at the British end. Yeah, and he was also—he's also the one, you know, who who was, uh, you know, I could never understand. I mean, yeah, okay, he's the one who also put this enormous amount of trust in academics, and didn't realise that actually many of them were totally misaligned with his sort of political thinking. I don't know why he never realised that, but he—he always—why he had this incredible trust in 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 you know in in let's say a certain line of thinking amongst a certain class of academics. I've never really understood that at all. Well, um, I mean, a personal opinion on on Cummings is that he's he's often described as the smartest man in the room, but I think that kind of went to his head, uh, especially when the other men in the room were members of the cabinet, who let's just say aren't the smartest. Yeah, and um, 
I think that um, the turn in British policy round about the time when Boris Johnson himself apparently got COVID seems to have been driven by the fact that there was a yawning void at the centre of the British government, which Cummings sought to fill with the science bureaucracy and adopted um, a series of uh, dramatic or melodramatic proposals from people like Ferguson with no, no real evidence that any of them would work. And then basically just doubled down and doubled down and smeared anybody who disagreed with them. Yeah, um, I mean that that yeah that that is essentially what happened. Yeah, yeah. I and mean, then when Johnson got back, he proved himself too weak a leader to change course. Um, he's proven himself again and again to be incapable of actually turning around and saying, "We tried this, we got something wrong, we can't." Uh, but he's he can't. He seems to be incapable of admitting any error at all. Yeah. Um, even even in the classic politician way of pinning the responsibility on former advisors who've now left, um, just keep, they just kept on going. Um, but that does lead me to the next question, which is talking about the, the change in policies, uh, uh, Dr. Fenton, the, what was in your mind, the, uh, the, the most egregious misrepresentations of data made by public <laughs> officials? I mean, there might be a long list here. Yeah, this is uh, so it's difficult to know where to start here because almost every statistical <laughs> claim you hear is misleading for two reasons. One, because of how we define a person who's a case and two, how we define a person who's vaccinated. So here are some claims, the kind of claims that I'm talking about, right? The nut, they said the number of cases in last winter, that's the 2021, they claim that was treble the number of cases in the first wave of spring 2020. False. Mm. The number of deaths in the second wave last winter, they say was grace in the first wave. False. Mm. One in three people with COVID have no symptoms. False. The vaccine is 95% effective. False. The vac vaccination stops almost all COVID hospitalizations and deaths. False. And now you've got these newest ones, which have come out in the last two weeks. You know, you're 30 times less likely to be hospitalized if you're vaxxed. And they now say an eight out of every 10 current hospitalizations are people who aren't vaxxed. These are all completely false. And to understand why they're all false, let's just first look at how this definition of a COVID case came about. Because look, remember that we've got, we've got the virus, SARS-CoV-2, which may or may not lead to the disease COVID-19, which has some very specific, albeit flu-like symptoms. Now, if you think about it, for previous respiratory viruses, having the disease associated with the virus meant you had to have had symptoms, but that's been thrown out of the window with COVID. And instead, anybody yeah. with a positive PCR test is classified as a COVID case, irrespective of whether they get the symptoms. So when you hear persistent government messages like one in three people with COVID have no symptoms, you need to realize that's a deliberate piece of misinformation because what they mean is that one in three people who test positive have no symptoms, which is probably true, but it's very, very different. Even if all asymptomatic people testing positive really did have the virus, there's no real evidence anyway of asymptomatic spread. Yeah. But what we do know is that because of flaws in the PCR test, most symptomatic people who test positive don't have the virus. Either they are false positive results. Mm -hmm. And people sort of dispute this, but there are a number of reasons. But we've got sort of, we've uncovered hard evidence of it. So if, if, I, if you excuse me, I just want to maybe go through that because I think these are important points. Of course. So first of all, 
there are sort of the well-known systemic problems with the tests. So most UK labs, for example, were running the tests at cycle thresholds above the recommended level, and that's known to increase the probability of a false positive. And of course, you can also adjust those to get more or less cases when it suits you to suit a political narrative. That's something separate. Now, we also know, this is something that we actually, mainly one of my colleagues uh, discovered, was that for quite a long period in the UK last year, when the labs were reporting positives on the labs basically were reporting positives on one on just one gene when by the guidelines of the world health organization as well as the kit manufacturers themselves they should have been reported as negative but mm. they were reported as positive a lot of them in fact in a period there were as many as 40% of the cases were actually single gene positives now, there are multiple potential causes of false positives through contamination and poor lab procedures. But the biggest difference, the biggest cause of a difference, is uh, the biggest cause of the problem is whether or not a confirmatory test is done before you declare a confirmed case. So the problem is that confirmatory testing is almost never done, right? But we know the difference. We know the impact of what happens when you do a confirmatory test because it just so happens that there was a Cambridge University study of asymptomatic students which gave us hard evidence about this because they were just testing asymptomatic uh, people under conditions, it was students, under conditions of rigorous testing. And in that study, there was basically, there was just over 10,000 PCR samples, obviously all from asymptomatics, only 43 tested positive, but what's important is that of those 43, so actually, the fact that there were relatively few tested positive means the so-called false positive rate is very low, but that's not what we're interested in. We're interested in how many of those 43 who tested positive were really positive. Well, all, 40, all 43 were subject to confirmatory testing because that's how the study was done, unlike the normal uh, case reports. It turned out that only six were confirmed positives, right? So that, you know, so forget about the, you know, the, the so-called low base false positive rate. What we know is that what we're interested in, what's the probability that a person who does test positive really is positive? And what we know is that if 36 out of the 43 um, positive test results were, were, were false positive, that's over 80% were false positives. So... Because outside the study, when they're reporting uh, positive cases, they're never doing confirmatory testing anymore. What it means is that almost all asymptomatic people who test positive are false positive. That's why I believe it, it makes no sense to mass test asymptomatic people. And, and it doesn't just and, – and the thing is, it, it, um, it, it doesn't just mean that you've got to take the case numbers that they tell you of pinch of salt. But also anything they tell you about COVID hospitalizations, mm -hmm. COVID deaths, and vaccine efficacy, because it, it's all problematic because of this flawed notion of, of a COVID case. But also, I mean, even without knowing any of that, we've got to remember that most hospitalizations and deaths which are attributed to COVID are not caused by COVID, but simply because a person happened to have a positive PCR test. So a COVID death a COVID death is, I mean, is defined as a person who dies for whatever reason within 28 days of a positive test. And a COVID hospitalization 
is defined as anybody who tested positive in 14 days of a hospital stay or after being admitted, irrespective of the actual reason for the hospital admission. So I always liken it to sort of getting a positive PCR test and therefore being classified as a COVID case. It's a bit like the Hotel California as in the Eagles song. <laughs> you know, you can check out any time you want, but you can never leave. Yeah. So, um, but incidentally, um, uh, there are some other really important stuff which anybody can look up. I can advise, recommend people. I mean, everybody goes to this government government COVID dashboard, you know, the one, it's the prime reference used by all the media outlets with scary graphs showing increases in cases, hospitalizations and deaths. But actually, <laughs> there's other easily available government data which generally ignored, which directly challenge these. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've, have you ever looked at the NHS dashboard for, for COVID triages? Yes. So basically, they log all at all, call, all calls to ambulances, 999 calls and 111 calls. And if you look at that data, right, you look at their charts, you can see there really was a massive peak in the spring of 2020 mm -hmm. when there certainly was excess loss of life due to COVID. But that was also incidentally combined with disastrous failures in the way it was treated. Mm -hmm. But if you compare it, if you look at the winter of 2020 to 21, there's only a small peak, which is not much different to any any increase you get from a normal winter respiratory disease, right? Yeah, the normal, the normal stuff. And the contrast with the COVID da dashboard is that, you know, the COVID dashboard shows this massive peak last, you know, up and up massive peak. And it's, it was just all a, a mirage created by testing. And I think, you know, it's what led, it, it sort of led into the narrative of we desperately need to roll out the vaccine program as soon as possible. Yeah. I mean, so, I Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're right. No, I don't mean. No, I mean just finally because it was about yeah. this whole thing about you know the the, the misrepresented re misrepresentation of data. I mean, coming on to the vaccine misrepresentation mm. of vaccine <laughs> data again, you're equating the flaw there is also you're equating cases of positive PCR tests, right? So you've got it's compromised. You know that compromises all the results, right? Especially as in observational studies, the fact that unvaccinated people are generally tested differently and more frequently than the vaccinated. So you're more likely to get false positive rates there. But here's the other thing that's different about all the data on vaccine effectiveness. That is massively compromised by a definition of what constitutes a vaccinated person. Mm. So a fully vaccinated person is a person is now defined by many governments and agencies, the person who's either had their second jab less than six months ago or already has had their third jab. Now, when it comes to recording cases, hospitalizations and deaths, a person who's not fully vaccinated based on this, this definition is often classified as unvaccinated. That's why you get these ludicrous, some of those ludicrous claims that I said before about 30 times, you know, more likely to be hospitalized if you're unvaccinated and, and two and, you know, eight out of 10 currently hospitalized or unvaccinated. It's all, it's all, it's all nonsense, right? I mean, actually it's even worse because the CDC count a person as unvaccinated if they die within 14 days of the second dose. Yeah. So, now, there may be some justification in classifying partially vaccinated people as unvaccinated if we're only interested in the vaccine's ability to stop infection. Mm -hmm. But in the context of hospitalization and death attribution, it's nothing less than fraudulent because we know that the period shortly after vaccination is when there's a heightened risk of suffering serious adverse effects, right? And this is where I was going to bring, <laughs> going to talk about the, the, that L 
Elgato Marlow, um, but his his uh, his his bunker example. So mm-hmm. basically, you're a soldier. Imagine a soldier pinned down in a foxhole. So across the field, you've got the bunker, and getting to the bunker will greatly reduce your risk of being shot. But the field you've got across is open to enemy fire. So you'll be you'll be very safe if you reach the bunker. But if there's a greater chance of being shot crossing the field um, than staying in the foxhole, it doesn't make much sense to try it. Now, the way the authorities are presenting the data showing vaccine efficacy and safety by treating deaths of partially vaccinated people as unvaccinated, that's akin to showing how safe the bunker is while ignoring all failed attempts to reach it. So they're Mm -hmm. selling the safety of the bunker without admitting you've got to run across the field of fire to get there and that you'll have the increased risk risk of being shot while you do. And, of course, they're doing worse than denying that the open run exists. They're watching you do it, seeing you get shot, and then calling it a foxhole death because you never made it to the bunker. Yeah. I mean, it's just a slanted way of understanding vaccine effectiveness and efficacy because it's slanted towards the pharmaceutical companies because you have to accept risk when you're trying to get to your for, full course of vaccination. But that whatever adverse events that are suffered by you as a result of this vaccination or lack of effectiveness as a result of this vaccination is not counted against them, the pharmaceutical companies. Ex- yeah. Exactly. In fact, that's why, and that's why we believe that the only, actually the only simple and truly objective way to evaluate the overall risk benefit of the vaccines is to compare all-cause mortality for vaccinated against unvaccinated. Because if COVID is, is as dangerous as claimed, and if the vaccine is as effective as claimed, we should by now be seeing many more COVID-related deaths among the unvaccinated than the vaccinated. And on the other hand, if the vaccine is as safe as claimed, mm-hmm. then there should have been very few more deaths from causes unrelated to COVID among the vaccinated than the unvaccinated. So putting those together the count of all-cause deaths should be higher among the unvaccinated than the vaccinated, and that would confirm the benefits of vaccination you know, outweigh the risks. It also, doing it that way, which is basically the way that we're doing it now, also completely bypasses the problem of defining what constitutes a COVID case or a COVID-related death, because we're only counting all-cause deaths and we're only considering vaccinated against unvaccinated, where as far as we're concerned, a person... Any person who's had at least one dose is vaccinated and any other definition is flawed. Yeah. Well, I mean, since we're on that, do you, um, uh, maybe I'll ask you. So I've read many analyses which use all-cause mortality to understand the effect of the pandemic and the vaccination campaign. Um, And um, so I guess one particular analyst that I follow a lot is a software engineer on Twitter called Ben M. Um, and he's been showing with his graphs how uh, access all-cause mortality is up with relation to last year in the United States, in the UK, and other countries as well. So what can, what does this tell us about the progress of the pandemic and the effects of vaccines um, and perhaps even the COVID-19 protocols otherwise? Yeah, I mean, all-cause mortality is up in, in many countries, including the UK. I think, but because of the massively complex effect, well, the massively complex effect of and interactions between the evolution of the virus itself, uh, and in particular the Delta variant, 
and also the different COVID intervention strategies, by which I mean, you know, primarily lockdowns and vaccines, it's very difficult to pin down which is having the most impact. Yeah. So we know that, I mean, we know that the effect of lockdowns has led to thousands of missed early diagnoses of cancer and heart problems. Mm -hmm. And those are beginning to lead to increased deaths, which I believe will spiral next year. Now, the massively diminished access to medical services from lockdown is certainly leading to large excess in deaths at home that we're seeing now. So people, I think people have even have stopped even thinking, you know, people don't even bother to try to go to the doctor anymore because they know yeah. they're not going to see anyone in person, right? And also they don't bother going to, you know, accident emergency when they would have done in, you know, in previous times. And of course, there's been an increase in, in, in suicides. Now, with respect to the evolution of the virus, I think it's, it's crucial to note that there does seem to have been a genuine problem with the Delta variant in the first half of this year. But of course, that coincided with the mass vaccination program. Now, mm. I'm not clinically or epidemiologically trained to provide an expert opinion on this, right? But relevant experts who I trust are pretty convinced that the vaccination program, you know, the mass rollout of the vaccination program itself, whilst, you know, we still, whilst the virus was still endemic, you know, that, that, that may have helped, you know, lead to the Delta variant. And with regard to the impact of the vaccination itself and all-cause mortality, the work that we're publishing actually today, this is going to be out later this afternoon, I hope, oh. concludes that there's no evidence mm. that the vaccine has reduced all-cause mortality, but there is evidence mm. in each age group of a spike in all-cause mortality um, you know, being caused basically shortly after the vaccine was rolled out for that age group. So these spikes you know, could well have been caused by the vaccine speeding up the death, especially vulnerable people, by which I mean people who would likely have died anyway in the next few months. So although, although we know there have been many thousands of um, serious adverse reactions and deaths reported in previously healthy people who have been vaccinated, and we know that vaccines can cause blood clots, blood clots and increased heart problems, especially in young men, I still think it's too early to see statistically significant signals of the vaccine causing much excess death in the long term. Mm. I mean, sorry, I'm afraid, I mean, at least for another you know, year or two. So, I mean, you get the spikes when you get the rollout. We've seen those, but we've, th those have already happened, right? Mm. You're not going to get that kind of spike again. And I mean, I don't know what it might happen with the, you know, with, with the booster jabs. You know, we, we, we haven't seen the evidence of that yet. We don't know. Mm. So, of course, yes. Yeah. So some believe the vaccines can cause long-term damage to the immune system, but again, we wouldn't see the resulting in significant excess or cause mortality, you know, for at least another year on that. Now, here's the problem about this. The problem is that by then, there'll be so few people left in the control group, and by that, I mean the unvaccinated, of course, <laughs> that it will actually still be difficult to be certain that any increase in all-cause mortality, if it's observed, is due to the vaccine rather than something else. And, of course, without control group, without control group to, to compare the vaccinated all-cause mortality against, who's to say the authorities aren't going to, say, blame a new variant or the virus for that? Uh, well, yeah. I, I mean, we've certainly seen... Um, I mean, in Canada, for instance, like there was a piece being run in one of the major news sources blaming 
the change in weather to increase blood clots, which makes no sense because we have... Yeah, they're starting to do that and they're starting... <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've seen a few, yeah, all, all various causes of, uh, yeah, of um, completely new causes of myocarditis in young men have now been found, apparently. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really sad because one of the major children's hospitals in Canada uh, called Sick Kids rolled out uh, new protocols on how to deal with blood clots, clots and myocarditis in children, um, and which they never have had to do before because there's... Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, anyways. Um, they've, also, they've also, incidentally, yeah. curious enough, been advising, yeah, advising people not to do strenuous exercise in the two weeks after vaccination. <laughs> it, well, okay. So the, despite what you're saying, which makes a lot of sense to me, um Governments are still releasing data, which is showing really great vac- vaccine efficacy. Mm. So you'll, you know, I see every single day data from my government in Ontario showing how there's so many more uh, unvaccinated people in the hospital, so many more unvaccinated people producing the cases. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved your analysis, uh, looking at um, how you show that a very simple one-week delay in deaths reporting can create this statistical illusion of vaccine yeah. efficacy. Yes. Yeah. So can you talk to us a little bit about how you, what led you to this yeah. kind of thinking? Yeah. Yeah, indeed. In fact, it works with, it works equally well, that illusion with number of infected as well as deaths or hospitalizations. And actually it might be easier to explain if we think of infections. So imagine that you've got a vaccine, which is just a placebo. So in other words, there's no way it can genuinely reduce the infection rate or death rate. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now let's suppose that that placebo vaccine is introduced into a population for whom the weekly rate of new infections is say one in a thousand people. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's an infection. There's a, there's a virus around, and one in a thousand people get it every week. Let's say. So if the population is one million, then in any week we expect about a thousand new infections. So suppose in week one the first 100,000 people are vaccinated. So 100,000 people are vaccinated, 900,000 remain unvaccinated. So among the 100,000 vaccinated, 100 are going to be infected. And of the 900,000 unvaccinated, you're going to get 900 infections. So you've still got the one in 100 for the vaccinated and the unvaccinated, Mm -hmm. okay? But there are different numbers at this point vaccinated. We'll try and remember those numbers, right? Because I'll come back to them. So in week two, suppose 200,000 new people are vaccinated. Then as there are now 300,000 vaccinated, we're going to get about 300 new infections in week two amongst the vaccinated. And since there are now 700,000 unvaccinated, we're going to get about 700 new infections among the unvaccinated. But the vaccination, the infection rate hasn't changed. The vaccine's doing nothing, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely nothing. But now, Mm-hmm. Suppose that the new the number of new infections are reported one week late. Then in week one, we've got no infection data, right? So we ignore week one. But in week two, what are we reporting? We're reporting the 100 infections for the vaccinated from week one. In a week, when the total number of, infe- of vaccinated now is 300,000. So we're reporting 100 infections for 300,000 vaccinated. And we're now reporting 900 infections for the unvaccinated when there's a total of unvaccinated of 700,000. So 
the infection rate for the vaccinated on the basis of that appears to be 100 in 300,000. And that's a rate of one in 3,000. Mm-hmm. Whereas the infection rate for the vaccinated is 900 in 700,000, which is an infection rate of one in 777. So that means it looks like the vaccinated are four times less likely to be infected simply by that one week shift. And as you, so it seems the vaccine seems to be having an immediate and dramatic positive impact. And if the vaccine program is ramped up in just a few weeks to 100, you know, almost to close to 100%, you get an even more dramatic difference week on week between the rates for the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. But it's just a statistical illusion created by that one-week delay in reporting. And what's more, and this is critical because this actually is covered in in the paper that we're publishing this afternoon about the real data, Mm -hmm. you get exactly the same illusion if those newly vaccinated in any week who then get infected or die are classified as unvaccinated. And we believe exactly that type of misclassification, that delay, not delay, but where if they if they get vaccinated and then die shortly afterwards, in fact, up to two weeks afterwards, they're getting classified as unvaccinated. And that statistical illusion, I, I've even proved that in a new blog post, you get exactly the same statistical illusion of, you know, this, this decreasing death rate for the vaccinated and increasing death rate for the unvaccinated. Mm. And that's basically, I say, that's happening in the monthly data being released by the Office for National Statistics. Well, I'm looking, well, we'll link to that in the show and release it and also this previous analysis that I'm talking about. Um, Alex? I mean, look, mm-hmm. I, I, I should say, I'm not saying that, that all, I'm not saying that, that, that everything is explained by these types of, you know, statistical quirks, you know, that, that you know, they may well be, you know, for certain, you know, the, the people, high-risk individuals, there may be benefits. What I'm saying is the evidence really isn't there. Yeah. Well, I, I think you know, the thing we is... Looked at the, that's the whole point. Our analysis looks at the evidence so far, and we can't find evidence overall that, that all-cause mortality is reduced with vaccines. And indeed, even in the yeah. Pfizer mm-hmm. trial, the, real, the, you know, the, the controlled randomized trial, yeah. the, you know, with 42,000 people, what, what do we know now that, that after how many, whatever, it's nine months, when you look at all-cause mortality at the end of it, mm-hmm. there's, what was it, something I think the, on the current data, it might have changed, this changes obviously every day. But the last time I looked, I think there were 22 deaths amongst the um, vaccinated and 16 deaths amongst the unvaccinated. <coughs> Yeah, it, it. I think actually the trials offer a really good um, supporting evidence for this position, right? Like, um, yes, this like ninety five percent efficacy rate is always touted, but this is relative risk. Like, it, it's this is a meaningless, almost meaningless metric. Yeah. yeah. So, like, the actual absolute risk reduction of the vaccines is zero point eight. So, it's very unclear to me and many other people how such a small risk reduction can affect the epidemic curve. For any of the of the clinical endpoints that they infections, deaths, or, or hospitalizations, it, it, it can't. And it, yeah. I say, it, and, and much of it is just illusionary. Yeah, I, I and I and I think that you know your example here of using the it's very common actually for a one week delay uh, in reporting. You know, um, absolutely. Incidentally, just to, for clarification, the ONS yeah actually in their data that it's not the the deaths actually aren't reported. We believe that they are using death by date of death, right? But it's the it's the classification of you know of a, of a once a person dies when vaccinated 
one after shortly after they've been vaccinated. It's classifying them as unvaccinated, which gives exactly the equivalent of a one week or two week delay, depending on what it is in death report. Exactly the same thing. Yeah, because you so okay. So the the process is you go for instance for infections, you go to the testing center, you get your test. Test needs to be processed and then needs to be entered, and so that already adds a bit of delay. Yeah, right. Of course. Um, and Absolutely. so when you're looking, for instance, at uh, the 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 curves that the governments will produce, looking at the progress of cases that goes up and up and down, it's actually more helpful to look at the the percent uh, positivity instead of the case numbers because yes, those case yeah. numbers have a built-in delay and so and so actually what i've noticed actually in our in my case in ontario is that the government's will uh, deploy a protocol like a lockdown or something after the the percent positivity rate has already started declining right so after the the actual peak of the pandemic and that but yeah. then they're going to ascribe the um success of the lockdown to this uh sorry to the declining cases to the success of the lockdown it's yeah that, they really do that dishonest. absolutely yeah anyway sorry go ahead alex <laughs> yeah um on the question of the vaccine efficacy and specifically on declining vaccine efficacy uh i i think it was this week that our esteemed health secretary over here, Sergei <laughs> Javid, um, who um, outlined that they were going to be bringing forward like the uh, the so-called booster campaign um, to for people who had the uh, vaccine um, over six months over six months ago, they were bringing it forward to um, for three months after your last vaccine to get the booster. This yep. um, he put down to the so-called Omicron variant, <laughs> yeah. um, but it was, of course, a confirmation of what many um, people who'd been um, skeptical of the official narrative, many scientists and statisticians, statisticians had been saying for a while, which was that the, the efficacy of the vaccine declined after around about three months. Um, yep. I remember reading that on, um, I think it was Gatto's uh, blog. Yep. And this was decried as a conspiracy theory at the time, but now it seems that they've confirmed it using Omicron as a convenient shield for themselves to do so. Uh, so what are your thoughts on that and the, the vaccine efficacy and the question of uh, declining efficacy? Yeah, well, the, the interesting thing is that, of course, this would be completely predictable just from that example that I said of the when we've got the, the problems with the reporting delay and that type of thing, because a lot of the high, you will get this high efficacy, you'll always get this high efficacy claimed when they're first rolled out because it's partly that inevitable result of that statistical illusion, right? And as, as I explained, you know, the misclassification leads to that, will inevitably lead to the illusion of high efficacy of the program initially. But as the increase in number of newly vaccinated each week slows, then the impact of the misclassification diminishes. So what you actually inevitably see is that the results for the unvaccinated and the vaccinated actually converge, right? The, 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 the instance rates and the death rates, et cetera. But actually, even if you ignore all of that and ignore all the possible explanations, you know, those statistical explanations for potentially inflated vaccine efficacy reports, just look at what the uh, UK HSA, that's the Health and Safety Authority. So they're, they're the people in the used to be public health in England. Just look at their most recent report because that showed that the infection rate among the vaccinated is actually higher now than of the unvaccinated in every age category above 30. Now, it's interesting that prominent statisticians like Professor David Spiegelhalter voiced great anger 
about this when it came out, saying that it was misinformation which would be exploited by anti-vax conspiracy theorists. And his argument, his argument is that the report relied on population statistics of vaccinated and unvaccinated, which was provided by the by NIMS, the National Immunology Management Service. And he claims that they're biased and unreliable. He was claiming that NIMS were double counting the vaccinated, right? So he said that they should be using the ONS, the Office of National Statistics Population Statistics, instead. But we did did a very thorough analysis of both the NIMS and ONS population estimates for the number of vaxxed and unvaxxed. And we found fundamental biases and inconsistencies in both. So the notion that the results of vax efficiency based on NIMS data are totally unreliable, while those based on the ONS data are totally reliable, are completely laughable. I mean, in any case, the fact that many of the most vaccinated places on earth are also the ones with some of the highest current infection rates does indeed seem to suggest that it was the UK HSA report that got it right. But actually, even the ONS reports, as I say, we're looking at those, they, when, you, when you actually get rid of the biases that, that, you know, and, and do the adjustments, you, know, you, get, you, you see the same thing, that, that there's no evidence that the vaccines, are, and there's no evidence the vaccines you know, ever really worked. I, I think that the, the core issue with the vaccines for me is that um, for the vast majority of people, and you can see this direct. Well, the the Pfizer trial uh, was not a, a measurement of how dangerous directly how dangerous COVID nineteen was, but it's it provides evidence as to how actually undangerous it is to the vast majority of people. Like so, yeah. you know, like in the trial, um, in the placebo arm of of the Pfizer trial, in the, in their last update, the six month follow-up data, um, 99.86% of people in the placebo arm were not hospitalized for COVID-19, right? So it's just like, what are you trying to vaccinate for exactly? Like, is this really, is vaccination a good way of addressing something that has so low morbidity and mortality? Um, Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's, it's similar, isn't it? It's the whole thing about the lockdowns. I'm just, just they never did a proper you know, cost-benefit analysis of the lockdowns. They've never done a cost-benefit analysis of the vaccine program. They just exactly. assumed yeah. mm-hmm. it has to be done, just like lockdowns. You know, there's no no alternative. We have to do it. Yeah, That was the only thing available then. Now the vaccine is the only, only available thing now. You just and, – and everything else has to be discounted. Yeah. Not, not even considered. I, I, no government on this planet has done a risk-benefit analysis of these vaccines or lockdowns or masking. No, Exactly. Not- where, where the, the onus is on them to demonstrate that there's net benefit here. And they've so far not demonstrated it. Um, well, okay. So speaking of lockdowns, they seem to be on the horizon again for a few yeah. countries, including oh my, your yeah. own. <laughs> okay. So it's been yeah. like two years. Um, what's your take? Do you think that lockdowns have an effect on case no. numbers, hospitalizations and deaths due to COVID-19? I've seen, there's, there's, look, I've seen no evidence of that, but there's plenty of evidence that when you compare the results for areas or countries with very different lockdown policies, you can see there's no clear, there's no clear difference. There's no statistical correlation between increased lockdowns and, you know, and decreased, you know, COVID incidents. I mean, at best, hmm. lockdowns might 
temporarily delay inevitable, you know, an ine- inevitable wave. Mm. But in contrast, where you know, while there's you know, there's there's almost no evidence that it reduces COVID cases, etc. There is, of course, massive evidence now mm-hmm. that lockdowns have a cost which far exceeds any benefits. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not just the sort of the, the excess inevitable excess deaths that we you know I spoke about earlier, right? But it's you know the devastating impact on the economy. I mean, especially you know small businesses, increased unemployment. I think the long-term impact of the furlough scheme, which will lead to, you know, increased taxes and the total destruction for future pensions, for example. I mean, the impact on children, their education, and the long-term damage that will cause. Short-term, we've had increased family breakdowns, home violence, and you know, the poorest in society have been the worst affected. You know, have been the worst affected, and and then above all, you've got the loss of civil liberties, which, you know, has never been factored into any of these uh, analysis. And that worries me because it's increasingly clear that when, you know, those hard-won civil liberties, we're we're never getting it back. And this is why, incidentally, I'm especially appalled by the role of academics and other commentators and politicians who traditionally, you know, say people of the left, the progressive, that type, you know, the so-called, you know, the, the, the liberal elite in a sense, they've traditionally been the ones who claim to be most protective of of our civil liberties and most, you know, protective of social justice and all of that stuff. I actually think that, um, you know, in future, but in future years, I believe people look on this back on this time as one of total shame for these people, especially academics, because the very people, you know, like academics who should have been leading the charge to question what governments were telling us, you know, ask for this evidence, pursue the truth, you know, have actually been the ones most prominent in censoring any attempts to get at the truth, right? And it's been largely academics who've pushed the government into these extreme restrictions and lockdowns. And it's often these are academics who are not even qualified in the relevant areas, right? And they provide no rigorous evidence or recommendations they're making. You know, they include psychologists <laughs> who are prominent in promoting the PSYOPs propaganda campaign of fear, which is all, you know, well documented. It's in, you know, it's in the um, you know, the government minutes of the, the meetings, right? Forcing people to comply with increasingly harsh restrictions and infringements of civil liberties. And the thing is, these academics are completely unaffected by the negative consequences of their recommendations. They've got no skin in the game. Yeah. So in contrast to independent workers and small business owners who lose all their livelihoods, not one of these academics or the politicians, you know, who, you know, who support it have lost a single day's work or pay. I mean, if you think about it, in fact, most of them, their lives have been made a lot easier because they can work from home. They're generally a privileged elite, large homes and gardens. Meanwhile, you know, it's the poorest in society, the ones they still expect to stack shelves and deliver stuff to their homes who suffer the most from, you know, the restrictions and, and lockdowns. I mean, the, the special irony is that the only time these academics with any government or media influence have actually voiced any strong concerns about what the government is doing is when the government wasn't prepared to go as far as they were recommending with respect to the most restringent, you know, lockdown, stringent restrictions and lockdowns. You know, so instead of challenging the ruling elites, which, they, you know, they've abandoned all their principles, they've become a core component of the ruling elite. Yeah, it's um, it reminded me in many ways of like a um, the logic that was outlined by the Blair government for the, all their restrictions on civil liberties during the what was referred to as the war on terror period. But this time, yeah, it's yeah. on steroids. It's all the same arguments. Absolutely, um, yeah. Um, but 
just uh, now it refers to viruses rather than the random acts of terrorism. Yeah, d- dare I say that it is, of course, you know, this is if, you know, the whole sort of lockdown and, you know, especially, of course, restrictions on travel and all that. I mean, this is, of course, just a precursor for the, the, the inevitable climate lockdowns, you know. So yeah. well, we know that the same that- people, the same academics who have, you know, who are, you know, enjoying their, you know, uh, being able to work from home and, you know, in the gardens. They were the people. Incidentally, do you know the whole thing about that whole Great Reset? I, didn't, I wasn't aware of that until until other academics who had kind of like bought into that was, were, were talking about the Great Reset and saying how, talking about it, you know, as Klaus Schwab does, a great opportunity, you know, to to also address the whole sort of, you know, the, the climate change issue. They They, they saw this... You know that this was going to lead to, you know, we could have much reduced, you know, travel and all that, all that kind of stuff. You know, not for them, of course. <laughs> yeah, of course, not for them. Never, never for, from, from never for them or Prince Charles with his uh, white wine powered Aston Martin. Um, <laughs> but uh, for everybody else, for the uh, the proles, etc. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I think that the uh, we've discussed this on the show before that like. COVID, um, climate change, war on terrorism, that kind of a, a series of um, they're events based in re- based in a reality, but the way that the the government um, bureaucracy, science bureaucracy, academic bureaucracy operates now uh, takes those takes what are real things and it distorts them beyond all recognition into something which is presented to the the general population as something to essentially scare them and get them to accept uh, worse life conditions and a loss of democratic rights. And yeah, yeah. it's my view that that's been going on for at least 30 years, perhaps it, longer. It, it has. I mean, and the thing is that it's that – it's, it, that, you know, we know – I mean, well, my concern is that this is all going towards a sort of an international um, – ID, which is which starts as a, I mean, the vaccine getting. Why are they so obsessed to get hundred percent people vaccinated? It's because ultimately they want they want it. They want a vaccine. You know, the digital vaccine pass, which effectively will be the digital ID mm. and and digital currency as well. International, you know, the the international currency. So then, you know, that basically the global elites are going to have total control. You know, over over individuals. I mean, that's why I think that. The scariest thing of all is, is, is you know, the vaccine mandate leading, leading to, you know, the digital vaccine passport. That, that is totally, you know, to me, that's totally frightening. Well, the, uh, that's, that's the reason why Tony Blair's so keen on it. He's been trying for a national yeah. ID card scheme for 25 years. Um, I think he became rather keen on it after his visit to Singapore in the early 90s. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Canada is um, has a vaccine passport for the country, but like the, I, I think depending on the country, there's certain political and administrative uh, barriers to that coming into place, in which the leaders of the the leadership of the country is just not able to overcome. So, like for instance, in Canada, it's the jurisdictional divisions between federal and provincial governments, which I think will stop them, but it certainly hasn't stopped them from putting as much pressure as they can to get every single last person vaccinated, including five-year-olds. Anyways. Um. Yeah, and you're getting, I mean, of course, I mean, Canada's really bad. But I mean, of course, what's happening in, in Germany and Austria is... is That's the worst. Appalling, you know? Yeah. 
yeah, well, that's Australia is winning the massive, award you know, at the massive, moment. The, these massive penalties, if you you know, the, the, and, and being forced to pay for daily or you know every other day P- ridiculous PCR tests. You know, if you're not vaccinated, you know, one way or another, they're trying to hammer people in their pockets, which ultimately is yeah. the easiest way to convince them to comply, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, certainly, like, um, like. Uh, I, I think I, to, to speak to your point about the responsibility of academics um, and, you know, other people, like people who are traditionally viewed as the leaders in our society. So the professionals, the doctors, the scientists, um, it's been really stunning to see them not kind of they're at the uh, the extreme flank of the government. So whenever the government will kind of uh, roll out some kind of, of policy, I, in Canada, for instance, I've noticed this all the time, like they'll always be pushing the government to go even further. So the government here, for instance, declined to impose a province-wide mandate on healthcare workers. The Canadian Medical Association, the Ontario Medical Association all came out and started screaming about how dare he not impose a province-wide medical uh, sorry, vaccine mandate on the medical, um, sorry, the healthcare workers. And so, yeah, it's it's been interesting to see them, um, like, they seem to be pushing the government in, in a more extreme direction. Like, that's, that's in their said. goal. Look at you, you got in the, these independent sage yeah. people over <laughs> here. Yeah, people doesn't, doesn't, doesn't matter like what the government does. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> They're, they're only criticism government. They're not going far enough, and they're always pushing them to go so much further. They want they want people locked down permanently. These well, that's what you get when you get um <laughs> you, you put t- twenty um, fanatical Guardian readers in a room together. That's what exactly. Happens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um. Anyways, well, maybe we'll just. Um, I think speaking of all this stuff, I think it'll be a good. We can bring in this question, and then um, maybe we can talk about politics a bit more. Um, depending on how much time you have. Um, okay. So, uh, something I, me and Alex have talked about at length is just being on this, under this tyranny of models. Like Mm. a model is basically has dictated every single aspect of our lives over the last two years. Like if the models line is going up, (laughs) you better cancel Christmas dinner, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, you're yourself, you're someone who works creating a st- st- uh, statistical analysis and modeling. So what is, in your mind, the proper place of modeling in the scientific process and in political decision making? Well, the thing is that the sort of models you're, you're talking about, like the ones which predicted you know, 500,000 deaths in the short term <laughs> if there was no interventions, they were the ones of Imperial College. Now, to be fair, I can't be too critical mm-hmm. of that type of those kinds of models because most of our own research revolves around building probabilistic models to predict uncertain outcomes. And that's essentially what those models provided by Imperial do. And moreover, I mean, their models like ours have to be able to incorporate fairly limited historical data with a lot of so-called expert judgment, much of which is subjective. Now, again, many criticize that, but actually I see it as absolutely necessary. The big difference is that our approach is much more big picture causal models. We use these and we use Bayesian inference to both update predictions as new data are observed, but also to provide explanations for why we're, why particular data we're seeing is observed. Now, in contrast, those imperial models, like many of the ones which you're kind of hinting at, they're kind of like statistic simulation models of the entire population, which you can think of as a kind of a computer game like SimCity without the graphics. Mm-hmm. So 
In addition to modeling each person and household, the models have hundreds of variables, some of which, if they change, will produce completely different outcomes. So obviously, there's the garbage in, garbage out problem. You know, but that's the same with all models. But although I have to say, with our Bayesian models, we inevitably would produce much wider confidence intervals than those of Imperial. But where Imperial got it wrong, mm-hmm. as they did very badly with previous viruses, is that their estimates of the key parameters were wrong. So it didn't matter all this fancy, you know, incredibly detailed modeling. If you get the infection rate, if you if you, you know, get a wrong estimate of the infection rate, i.e. how easily transmissible the virus was, and if the infection fatality rate was overestimated, which it was, while the natural immunity to the virus was underestimated, then you get you get these, you know, the, you get these basically ridiculous predictions. And the key point is that their prediction of 500,000 deaths without interventions was also on the speed which would happen, right? So the, the model was, was, it wasn't that it was the number of deaths, it was the speed which it was going to happen. So it's, that gave rise to the narrative that the hospitals would very quickly be unable to cope. And it was that which drove the demand for lockdowns. And of course, Imperial actually did explicitly incorporate different lockdown scenarios, but the assumptions encoded into those weren't based on any kind of relevant empirical data because no one had tried these large-scale lockdowns. You know, they never happened before in Western countries. Mm-hmm. And they, and most importantly, the models, of course, never considered the costs of the lockdowns, only the supposed benefits. Yeah. And so that's why they exaggerated both the danger of the virus and the effectiveness of lockdowns in halting the spread uh, quickly, right? And it was presented as the only way to stop hundreds of thousands of people dying very quickly. Now, politically, I, I think the politically, I think the pol- politicians were kind of like both. Um, they were uh, when I say that, they were they were so they were so scared and so you know taken in by the academic models that they didn't want to be accused of ignoring the advice and having blood on their hands. Mm-hmm. And of course, far too much power. Then, of course, as Alex was saying that they delegated it then to the academics and, and, and sage and these models who didn't have the relevant um, expertise, and actually many of whom um, had their own agendas, which are both um, political and financial. And of course, you know there are also let's face it, there are many other political forces that coalesced on the idea that lockdowns was such a good idea, and there was no point in considering you know anything else. As I've suggested, you know the whole the great, you know, reset thing. But think about also this, you know, this thing about the impact of, you know, modeling. I mean, there was this, obviously, I assume you know about sort of the event 201 simulation. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So that was, I mean, again, models, that was a simulation. They brought in all these modelers there. That was a simulation that was held, of course, October, 2019, coincidentally, just before, (laughs) just before uh, COVID. And of course, that was a simulation of a SARS type virus from China. And at that event, Based on all the models, again, it was somehow agreed that lockdowns, as well as many of the other measures that we've seen implemented for real by most governments, like the psyops operations and media censorships, you know, they would decide that that was the the main answer there. You know, so uh, you know, and again, fits into the Great Reset, Build Back Better mantra, all, all of that kind of stuff. It's it's very that you know the models can very easily be manipulated for you know for, to fit particular you know particular 
political narratives as well. Our thanks to Professor Fenton for coming on the show today for what was a very interesting discussion of the uses and misuses of data and computer modelling throughout the previous nearly two years now of the COVID regime. We'll be linking to the papers he discussed during the interview in the description box of the podcast, so if you want to read those, be sure to go and do so. And it only remains for me to say thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the programme.